morning, church. And it is good to be home. Um, the last couple of weeks, if you're visiting with us, the church affords me a few times throughout the year to sneak away um, to get out of my normal routine uh, and to seek the Lord just in prayer and direction and, and just some personal filling of my cup. And so last two weeks, I've gotten to spend uh, doing that, and it has been incredibly sweet. Um, I was able to be here last week, and uh, man, aren't we, aren't we blessed to have someone like Pastor Scott being able to fill in and preach and share uh, while I'm gone? And you can encourage him, a real authentic clap on that. Um, but, but as I was there and, and just walking through the Word and, and trying to scribble, um, you know, Lord, what are you telling me? Um, it took me a while to get out of Lord, what are you telling me to, to share with the church? And uh, the Lord very quickly, after my second day of getting up about 6.30, showering and trying to get out of my, my room as quick as possible for the Holy Spirit to say, where are you going? Where? You don't have to go anywhere. You, you don't have someone else to attend to. It's just us. It's just me and you. And just to remind it how sweet that is, when we walk into the Lord's presence, we often are about what you can do for me or what you did to me or what I have for you or what I have against you. We have all of these, all of our thoughts, they tend to be in this relation to one another, almost as if that's primary. And let me tell you what the Lord was saying was, David, I am primary. And that's my word for you and that's my word for your church. And, and we, we share that condition pretty freely in our culture, like what really our heart says. Our, our words can say a lot of things, but our heart speaks truth, even when, when our brain and our mouth thinks we're saying something else. And part of that undergirds Romans chapter 10. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 10. That's where we were two weeks ago. We were in Romans chapter 9. We were talking about salvation and how did God mess up because not as many Jews were coming to know Christ as Gentiles were? That's Romans chapter 9. And how Paul kind of says, listen, God's footing, it, it's, it's firm, it's not fragile. His plans aren't going to fall apart. His character isn't, isn't messed up. It's not broken. It's not torn apart. God is able to do what he wants to do. And if God wants to say, this is your, my will for your life, and this is my will for your life, and it's very different, so be it. And a lot of times we stop there and we say, well, then that's it. If, if God, if that's what sovereignty means, and that is what sovereignty means, then, then what's the point? God's just going to do with me what he will, and, and, and God it can. And he would be just, and when he does it, he's just. But Romans chapter 10 says, but that hasn't stopped him from giving you and I every opportunity to embrace him. Isn't that amazing? When I read through this word this week, the thing that came to my mind, the word that came to my mind most was passion. Passion is absolutely the currency of our day, isn't it? I mean, if someone is passionate, then that's the litmus test for authenticity. If I hate you passionately, then that must be birthed in something true. 
if I love you passionately, it must be based in something true. If I feel a certain way about something and I'm passionate about it, then it stirs and builds everything inside of me. Am I making enough money? If I'm passionately saying yes, then it's true. If I passionately say no, then it's not true. Is that movie good? If I can stir up enough passion about it, then it must be good. How about my decisions in parenting or marriage or my definition of events? If I passionately believe those things, there must be authenticity to that, right? Even if it's not all completely authentic, only the Word of God is true, there must be at least a foundation because I'm passionate. And I share it with passion. And passion is convincing, is it not? See, this isn't a 2023 thing. Passion as a proof of some sort of authenticity has been going on since time began. And it's what's going on in Romans chapter 10. And, and it really raises that question. If someone is passionate and fully believes in their beliefs, is that enough? If someone is passionate and fully believes in what belief, is that enough? Does that make it right? I mean, think about it from, from religion to perspective. Someone who's passionate and sharing their opinion, sharing their thoughts passionately, even if we don't trust them, can be convincing because they're so passionate. Does that make it right? All the markers of the world would say yes. Because with the passion of the pit of hell in his heart, Satan said, I will become like you. I will stand with you with passion. And we love someone believing in something. Who are we to say what's right and what's wrong? I mean, if the world is gray, how do we choose between the truth, between two passionate people? I'll tell you, normally we walk away from all those relationships. And when one of those people is Christ or God, we'll leave him just the same. Since 2020, 33% of those who used to go to church have walked away. Causing that is that all bad as long as they're passionately believing what they have this is what Romans chapter 10 says and here's going to be my foundation for this I don't need you to believe me I am not the highest authority on truth we have one sovereign God and what he says is true and so don't take my word for it. And don't take anybody else's word for it. 
What does the sovereign God, what does his spirit inspire the pen of Paul to write about this reality when we passionately believe something? Authentically believe it. Does that make it true? Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Look in your Bible with me. Paul writes these words. My brothers, brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. There's a reason that, that this verse connects to verse to chapter 9. Chapter 9, remember, is talking about how, how Paul is saying that his brothers, the Jews, the chosen people, people who had a, a leg up, who God reached out to specifically, who have had all the prophets, who've had all the law, who have had every opportunity possible. In other words, it's like the person who has grown up in church, raised in church, maybe even served on staff, preached in a pulpit. You've had every opportunity possible. And yet, they are authentically, passionately rejecting the reality and the fullness of Christ. Something else. Paul says, Listen to me. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. We look at the word desire in Scripture a lot, and in that, we often think of it as this kind of desire that we experience the most. And this desire here, as we look at it, like in, in Genesis chapter. Um, uh, three and four, when we start to see the desire that uh, a woman has as a, a, a penalty of sin for her husband, or that Cain sins crouching at your door and desires to have you, that's the desire we normally wrestle with, right? It's something that wants to control us. That's not the same word in this passage. The, the word desire here means it's my good pleasure. Like, like, my hope for good. Like, like, I can't tell you how badly I want it. The closest thing I could tell you is it's, it's, it's a desire that is birthed from, from the beauty of almost a parent who's watching their child self-destruct and cause damage all around them. It's a husband watching his wife, a wife or a husband, a child or a grandparent, a, a spouse, and, and watching them embrace destruction and helpless to stop it and saying it is my good pleasure I would do anything if it would work Paul says that's how bad I want you to know my words and church the spirit empowers him to write this that's the way God wants us to know freedom and life and salvation. But he doesn't force it on us. See, here's the problem. Most of the time, this is what drives our passion and authenticity. If I love you with my heart's desire, I'm coming at you with everything I've got. I want to woo you. It's how I, I can't stop thinking about you. When, if you grew up in my decade, it was when you had the cord that was 30 foot long that stretched from the kitchen all the way to your bedroom. Y'all follow me with that one? Like a tripping hazard for years? Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's okay. 
it, it's, I just can't stop thinking. I can't get you off my mind. It's also when someone gets under your skin and you start hating them passionately. Our political world loves this. It's made its way into our relationship. I can't stop. Every time I think about you, I want, it's my heart's desire to, to just crush you, to destroy your name. Because I, I authentically find this place. It, this is the thing that makes us compromise when we claim Christ. But in our heart's desire, I want to claim Christ, but I don't want to spend eternity with you. John says, if you hate your brother and you think you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God says you're wrong. Good pleasure can make us compromise. If Scripture rejects my child, then Lord, I'll close out some of your belief, some of who you are, and I'll have this faith that looks like Jesus to the world, but that makes a door in for me to encourage something that I know is wrong. I would tell you that this authentic, passionate thing is not only the driver, but it's a compromiser. It's what's destroying the church. We don't even need to talk about the culture. If you don't love Jesus Christ, listen, there's already something you're wrestling with. But in the church, this is what's tearing us down. Because if the good you want or what would bring you relief, and sometimes those things that bring us relief is watching someone else get what they deserve. If you cling to that in Jesus, I want to let you know the rest of Romans 10 is a testimony to you, to me. So let's look what Paul says in verse 2. The Bible says it this way, and I'll, I'll get it ready here as well. For I bear witness to them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now this is when it gets tricky. This is when we're talking about the Jews here, but I'm telling you, this is for us today. It, it's talking about people in the church, people in, in other religions. This, is, this isn't meant to just say this pocket over here. This could be you. It could be, it could be your friend. It could be a family member. It could be a, someone practicing another faith. Because what it says is, I bear witness that they have a zeal for God. Well, what does it mean to have a zeal for God? We don't use the word zeal often, but the word zeal means to bring to a boil. It means to, to turn on the heat. It means that they are passionate in their spirit and they are excited in their mind. And so we say, well, if you're passionate in your spirit and excited in your mind, how is that a bad thing? It's authentic. It's real. I mean, how do I argue against that? If you believe in an experiential foundation faith, then you can't argue against it. 
can't do it. But if you believe in a sovereign God and his word is all true, then you don't have to because he's already said it. It says they have this boiling for God, but not according to knowledge. The word according here matters because I'll tell you what the picture means. The word according in a picture means to look away from or to look down. It's how we pray for someone and God to resolve a problem. But we don't want to look up because we don't want him to address what's inside of us. Have you ever been there? If you have a pet, if you have a dog, when our, when our dog is, is done something wrong, we'll just say, Bella, and you know what she does? It's, she won't look you in the eye to save your life. I mean, she knows there's a problem. She's just hoping you won't know it's her. I want you to put that together. A zeal that is feeling great. A zeal that feels right. A zeal that is all consuming. If I could scorch the earth for you, Jesus, it would be a better place. If I could compromise this part of your word, God, just a little bit, it would just be right. It's a right feeling that's stirring your heart and your passion and your affections and your excitement. But won't look God in the eye when it comes to asking him what it takes of you. What this word means is submit is only a word that I think of for others. A passion that's always saying they're the problem, they're the problem, they're the problem, they're the problem. They've messed up. They've thought the wrong thing. They've got the wrong beliefs. It's going in here. scripture says is this you can be authentically passionate about God and completely disingenuous in your relationship to him an authentic passionate disingenuous be after a God that loves me and if he loves me I'll always feel good and it'll encourage that good 
or the opposite way. God, if you would just use me to scorch the earth. Oh, God, please, Heavenly Father, use me to put them in their place today. A zeal for God willing to lay everything down, but with a knowledge based on my experience with Him. That's what's most important. That is a zeal without knowledge. And Paul says this is the problem with his brothers who have rejected Christ and are playing the game. And this is the problem in the world today. We're authentically unzealous for God, but it is based on me and my knowledge and my relationship and, and this all from my terms but not any knowledge of being submissive to him through his word his spirit look at verse 3 for being ignorant of righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own they did not submit mm. they did not Submit to God's righteousness. How do I get here? How do we find ourselves in a place of passionate zeal, bubbling excitement and mind abiding for God? Authentically all in, but way off base. I mean, I would tell you to go back to, to Moses and, and Aaron and Miriam. And Aaron and Miriam said, with authenticity, why do we have to go through you, Moses? God can use us just like he can use you. Who are you? And God said, oh, he's just Moses, but I chose him for this role. And by degrading him, you've deceived yourself. And Miriam was stricken with leprosy. Authentic, passionate disingenuousness. How does it start? Notice, it starts with an ignorance but it's an ignorance of the righteousness of God in other words it's the ignorance of what God says this is what it looks like to live in a right relationship with me I mean this is fantastic are you ready for this because we know this and we've done it before but we'll keep doing it right this is an interactive part of the sermon if mama ain't happy what nobody's happy if you're not in a right relationship with your wife and your or your mother is your household having a wonderful day? No. No. If you are ignorant of a right relationship with God, then you can be as zealous as you want. It doesn't change the fact you're not right with it. How could I be ignorant if I sit in church every week? How could I be ignorant if I were to memorize all of Scripture? How could I be ignorant? Well, I mean, there's lots of ways. Part of it's surface-level familiarity. I, I want to memorize Scripture, but God, I don't want your Spirit to tell me what it means, only in the parts that I like. I just want a knowledge that's dependent on someone else's faith. And the only time I tend to really read the Bible is when I come to church 
and I listen to my life group leader or I listen to the pastor. Like my faith just depends on what someone else says. Or maybe we're just self-confident. Why would I want to read that book of the Bible again? I've already read it, read it so many times. I don't need to know what God wants for me because I already know, but you need to know what God wants for you. You see, a pursuit that's grounded in a headline or this surface deep knowledge leads to the place where Jesus says in Matthew 23, 15, this is what the Bible says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you travel across the sea to make a single proselyte. Okay, listen. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. You think, I don't even know what that means. Have you ever gone out of your way to woo people to your perspective when you love something or hate something? Have you ever done that? You've just gone out of your way and you keep it up. You've gathered the evidence. You've made it happen. That, that's what it means. You're going out of your way. And what Scripture says is when you and I live zealously in a faith that's ignorant of a right relationship with God, everyone who we authentically get excited to live life in our footsteps instead of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that we are actually setting them on the same path to destruction as us. The problem is they're twice as deep because they're just relying on you. you're all right with that because you rely on God or so you think I think that this type of reproduction in the church that says keep people ignorant sitting in class walking through things it's here when you want it it's here when you need it it's created this exodus a generation that says if that's how someone handles himself when they don't like fill in the blank the way a person teaches they don't like fill in the blank a way a person talks about them they don't like fill in the blank the way a race if that's the way they handle it if that's Christianity I'm out I'm done because they can get that venom without it smelling like Jesus all over the place. And at least they're not pretending it's not hypocrisy. See, that's what Romans 10 says. That we're making people more convinced not to pursue God truly when we pretend to serve Him in ignorance and pursue Him in ignorance. Think of Christian marriage. I think sometimes this ignorant means we don't even know how we, own, we got there. How did I become that kind of person? Oh, think for a minute if you're married. Guys, I've only thought of this from our perspective. I remember when the Lord allowed Christy to capture my heart and my mind. Y'all, I studied her. Y'all know what I'm saying? I learned, I wanted to know what she liked. I know what she didn't like. When she said, ooh, I like that cologne, everything else went out the window. 
right? <laughs> it was Drakkar, I think, now that I've missed it a few years for that one. I, I, just, I just studied all about her. But, but you know what happens in our marriage and our life? Like, we study them and woo them, and once we lay hold of them, do you keep studying your spouse the same way for the next 10, 20, 2, 15 years as you did when you were wooing them? This is not the time to create marital counseling. But you probably can't answer that as truthfully as your spouse. Because when we study a man or a woman in the intent to woo them, and then we start living selfishly as if they're welcome, they have us, then your marriage will start tasting like death because you're living in ignorance by choice and that's what happens in our faith when we say I've read the Bible I've gone there <laughs> I went to Sunday school till I was 18 I'm never going back Passed the test when you and I live in ignorance of the righteousness and what it looks like to have a right relationship with God and we seek to establish our own we build this one plus two equals three kind of moment ignorant of the righteousness of God plus seeking to establish my own my own definition of rightness there's a reason I need to take your kneecaps out because I know it's right even though no one else may understand the, this equals a lack to submit to God's righteousness in themselves. You see, a works-based theology, no matter how passionately we tell ourselves we're trying to, to seek God, is really trying to seek our own version of God. And we can use all the scriptures that we want. We can put it all together. But if it's a work-based theology, if it's follow me, if you disagree with me, you're dead to me kind of thing. It's not about, I know what scripture says, but I'm telling you what I know. Church, what that says is one plus two equals you won't find a life that's really submitting to God. Because they're zealous for God but it's based on seeking to establish their own, their own crew, their own fiefdom, their own definition of God. It, it creates people who says, I won't believe in a God if that's who he is. It creates a people that says, I don't want a God who doesn't want me as I define me. It says, I won't believe in a God who doesn't fold in the end what I think he should do I'm out if he don't want me fine church the hard part about that is is God is content to let that happen to let that be the outcome as much as that is not his desire for you if you are really seeking approval sure you're seeking God 
we often say that, God, I want your approval. But what we really mean is, God, I want your approval based on something I haven't submitted myself to in a way that I'm comfortable with. God says, that's not even faith. But it's the motto of, of our Christian culture, of our worldly culture, of a works-based culture that says, God, I will obey you and I will yield to you as long as you approve of my will. Church, that is brokenness. And you and I will know a tree by its fruit. And if you go home and life is bitter and things are, are just sour and sourness is what brings you life, then know the fruit. If God is always disappointing you, know your fruit. If you can only be content with God and passionate about God when he agrees with what you're doing and believes in what you're saying, look at the fruit. It does not reek of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's better to say, God, my fruit I have thought was beautiful is rotten it's better to say that in confession now than on the day of judgment when your knee bows and your tongue confesses you were right because it won't be with seeking to establish your own it will be in death and that's what Paul goes on to say he says let me show you what it looks like for this is the end of law, of the law, Christ. If you want to know where the law Jews were pointing you to, it was Christ. If you want to know what God has for you, it, it, it's Christ. Verse 5 says, Moses wrote about a righteousness that was based on the law, that a person that does the commandments will live by them. So there, there's no way to do this because here's what happens. What Paul says is that the law, right, which was works, that the law is a road that leads to Jesus. But if you and I use this dirt road of God that leads to Jesus, and we start gathering up piles to build a foundation of righteousness to build our life on. Then you have defined the road as a foundation. The law was not a foundation. It was a path to Jesus. And you were building your life. And every time you tap down that self-righteousness, you witness against yourself. See, that's what Scripture says. That's why a works-based theology, it can't work. It's man-centric. And, and then Paul writes this picture of it. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Verse 7, or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. 
that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Paul gives us this picture. And he says, this is a man-centric, every man-centered, every works-based place, man-centered. Based on self, even using God's tools. But this is a God-given salvation. So when a man-centric faith says, I can grab hold of eternal life as long as I fill in the blank, do the right thing, as long as I go to the right places, as long as I have enough good against enough bad, I, I, I can gain eternity and hold on to my sin and put on a, a clothing of righteousness because I'll, I'll forget about my sin every now, now and then. If I do that, then what I'm saying about Jesus is this. I don't need you. I mean, I can say I love you. I, you might say Jesus is a nice model for how I'm supposed to live life. He helps me be a better worker in my man's faith. It says, listen, I can grab a hold of time and eternity as long as I understand this, that Jesus' death, although wonderfully picturesque, it wasn't necessary. I mean, he didn't have to die. It was probably a waste of time. And your words and your lips may never say that, but even if you hold him in a high esteem, what you're saying about Jesus a great dude son of god i'm in jesus come into my heart all the church stuff you're making christ small you're rejecting christianity that's what it says but it says this but if you believe not just who will ascend to heaven but who will send down to the abyss in other words who can shut the doors of hell I may not be able to get my way into heaven, but I surely can keep myself out of eternal condemnation. I, I can surely bring at least that much salvation to me. If it works for me, it works for you too. Then what your life is saying is this. I don't need the power of God. Because the Bible says that God raised Jesus from the dead in order to make a path to life to keep us from eternal condemnation apart from him. If I live a works-based theology, what I'm saying, God, is I appreciate your power and all the nice places you've made for me. But I got this. It's saying that my power is equal to God's. So let me ask you this. Does that sound like someone who is in the know? of what it's like to be in a right and good and healthy relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No. And, and what Paul says is so incredible, so beautiful is this. He says, listen to your Bible. Turn in there. If you don't have it written down, go here with me. What does the word say? Verse 8. 
The word is near you. In other words, you're not having to work for it. The word is near you. It's, it's right. God's made it easy for you. In your mouth and in your heart, this is the faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. In other words, your lips line up and direct your excitement. They direct your, direct your zeal. What you're saying is, I submit to you. I'm, I'm going to follow you. Because you're in charge. When I'm angry and hateful, you're in charge. I submit to you. When I'm on the top of the mountain, you're in charge. I submit to you. When I am feeling like I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, you're in charge. I submit to you. And Lord Jesus, if I sin, God, I need you to discipline my heart. Because you Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. There's no pride in your life. It can't, it can't reside. It may pop up every now and then, but it can't stay there. You can't hold on to it because that self-righteous pride that makes you and I so zealous, shut the gates of hell for me can't try to open them on everyone else in the room because I was a wretch and while I was a sinner Christ died for me Jesus was beaten he was spit upon he had were meant to hurt him physically, emotionally, mentally. They were celebrated in public. And he didn't raise his voice. A man-centric faith is steeped in pride, trying to convince everyone to affirm we authentically have defooled ourselves into believing. And what scripture says is that's not a thing. Because God in the life of a believer only the power of the king of kings shut the door to hell and condemnation. So it's not my role to walk outside of my Lord's will. It's not my place to try to let someone else taste the hell that was earned for me through my actions, but saved by the power of God. For Scripture says, excuse me, verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 11, for Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Greek and Jew, for the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing on riches on all who call on him. 
anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Church, I don't know what happens 15 minutes from here. I, I, I'm not in control of what happens when you and I pull out into the parking lot on the street an hour, a day, 10 days from here. But I know right here and right now, even if it would embarrass you before everyone in the room, it is worth it. If you have not confessed Jesus as your true Lord, here the world may not like it and the world may notice but it's not the point the word is near to you you don't have to work for it you have to give everything up for it and a lot of those rotten fruits have made you you for so long you don't even know what you would be like without them I want to let you know it's better God, we love you. Lord, as we look at your word, Lord, we see all around us a passionate zeal. And it looks like it's for God. But it's not for you. It may say Jesus. It may say Holy Spirit. It may say God. But it's not. It's, it's a passion that is full of self-deceit. of the power of the Almighty to raise him.